Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Christian Church. We're so glad you're here. There's still time to add your updated contact information for the church directory. The forms are located outside of the worship center, and they should be returned by March 7th. The Lent guide is now available on the table outside of the worship center, but if you would like to have one mailed or emailed to you, please contact the church office. On February 21st at 2 p.m., the Kids and Student Ministry will be holding a free movie event at the Alliance Movie Theater. Space is limited, so please sign up if you are interested in attending. That's all the announcements for today. Enjoy the service. Everybody would like to stand with us. Father, thank you for this day that you have made. Pray that you would uh, prepare our hearts to hear your word and sanctify your word as we hear it. And it's for your wonderful name we pray.
Kiddos, if you want to go meet Matt in the back, we'll see you after the service. Hey, uh, I'm on now. Am I good, Rod? Okay. Well, it's good to see you guys this morning. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, nice to see everybody online. Well, at least nice that you can see us, hopefully. Uh, but hopefully through us you can see the Lord, and that really is the goal here today. Uh, it's, um, it, it's hard to get through February because it's like the shortest, no, it's like the longest, shortest month of the year, and uh, this week is going to get kind of interesting as well. But there are some praises. I'm so glad to see Wendell here with us. I know you've had quite a journey, and uh, praise the Lord for that. A lot of people have been praying for you. And um, I, I know uh, um, uh, my friend Robin has a good praise, and so it's just good to hear some good news for a change. 
And there's some really good news that's found in the book of Luke that we're going to be centering on today. But before we get there, um, I, I guess my other good news is uh, the Power Habits booklet. It's 100 pages long, and uh, it was quite an ordeal to get this thing together. Uh, I'm so grateful that uh, 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 Brittany graciously uh, put all the pieces together for me. Um, but I, I'll tell you, it was it was a trip to try to get this thing done. It took me twice as long as I thought it was going to take, and I couldn't figure it out why, out, out why until I got done. And I realized that usually I put together 21-day prayer guides. And this is a 40-day Lent guide. Uh, so I got done, and I'm like, why did that take so long? And uh, that's why. And so it's about twice as big, but hopefully... Uh, as we go through the power habits of Jesus, uh, I think you're going to find that the five keystone habits, the habits that take uh, one particular activity or practice routinely, and it has an, uh, an effect that ripples out into every other part of our lives. And so I just want to put up a couple of slides, just give you a, a, a friendly reminder of what uh, these habits are, if we can just take a look. A keystone habit, which is a habit that people introduce into their lives that unintentionally carries over into all other aspects of their lives. That's the definition of what that is from the book, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And then if you look at the five keystone habits of Jesus, uh, you discover that uh, he spent time uh, in the storyline of the Gospels, um, basically committing himself to a community of people and communities of people. He spent time in Scripture. Uh, One-tenth of the things he said was a quotation or an allusion to Scripture. Uh, he spent time praying, and he also um, took time to retreat from the noise and finally, uh, he habitually went to church. And we find that as we read through the Gospels, that these are the patterns that he basically engaged with. And I think he did. I think that's by design there for you and I to pay attention to. Because the bottom line is, if you want to thrive in your relationship with the Lord, there is no other place, I think, that you can go to that will give you the guidance that you need than to just carefully look at what Jesus did and what he said. And by design, it was intended for us to begin to imitate and take on in our own lives so that when people see us, they see him. And uh, this Lent guide, each week we're going to be looking at what those commitments were, how they developed into habits for Jesus, and then there are activities that are at the end of each reading that will help you to cultivate that habit. And so I, I really hope that if you, um, if you haven't been um, uh, really too connected to the Lord or the things of the Lord and you want to get reengaged, uh, that you'll get yourself a copy of this. Or on the the back of the, um, uh, the the worship center on the table, uh, we've got plenty of copies. And if you're online, uh, we can definitely uh, either mail you a hard copy or you can get a digital version of that. But my my hope is and my goal is that our whole church will be going through this this reading together, 
and it will be a blessing for our, our lives as a church and as we walk together into 2021 uh, with boldness and confidence uh, because we're grounded and rooted in the Lord. Um, so with that said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a word of prayer about this, but I'm going to pray pastorally uh, for what we have going on. And then I'm going to end with the, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so at the prompting of that, just say that along with me, if you will. And please do that online as well. So let's go before the Lord. Our Father, as we begin this first day of the week, we want to center our lives around the life of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for giving us a hope that is centered in not just ideas, but in the reality of your Son, how he is King of kings and Lord of lords, how in so many ways he embodies all of the things that we lack, and yet he provides the way for us to be able to integrate into our lives characteristics like faithfulness and commitment to the things that are important to you, Lord, and just a desire to do the things that um, are right and good because they're empowered by your Holy Spirit. Father, we just thank you for all of those realities that flow out of his life and into ours and how the pages of Scripture enable us to um, attached to those realities. Father, we just pray for your blessing upon this, uh, this Lent season as it kicks off on the 17th. I pray, Father, that you would just compel our people to read through this guide, to read the scriptures, to find in their experience your abiding presence and an awareness, perhaps, that maybe we've never had before of just how much you are engaged with our lives. Father, we need you more than the words of the song that we just sang can express. We live in a time where there is so much ambiguity and uncertainty and rewriting of the rules and the script that we need that stable anchor in our lives in order not to languish but to thrive. And so I pray for your blessing to be upon your people. I'm thankful, Father, for prayer requests that have shown through patience and perseverance um, uh, uh, the, the deliverance of people, the fulfillment of, of, of things that have to do with surgeries and jobs and other things that we've had to endure during this COVID season, that you have been there as a faithful providing presence. Father, I'm grateful for this study that we're doing on the book of Luke. I'm thankful that I can collaborate with our one of our elders, Rich, on just getting into the substance of it so that we can, at the ground level, think in a fresh way what life was like for your son and what that means for us. So Lord, help us to tune into those things today to take all of the distractions, to set them aside, and to allow your word to penetrate our hearts and our minds. We just want to surrender ourselves to you, not only today, but as we move into the Lent season, that our attention would be even more focused 
on those things that you have for us through your son, Jesus. And as the disciples asked the question, Lord, teach us to pray. Would you pray with me now the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, a lot of the stuff that was in, I'm, I'm getting a message. So I will adjust the mic away from your mouth a little bit. Is it being scratchy? Sorry. Let's see how we do there. I probably should just buy a razor. Maybe that helps. So we'll uh, we'll work on that later. Uh, but for right now, um, I I want to I want to turn to the book of Luke and explore uh, the story that we've been going through of the beginning of his ministry and how it is that um, he did what he did that resulted in our being here. And it all starts at a synagogue uh, in Nazareth, according to Luke. He uh, is worshiping with the other, the other believers, the other basically Jewish people that were God-fearers in the sense of how we understood Israel and Judea and the whole tradition of God's people that Jesus was born into. And it says that um, uh, something pretty interesting is about to happen as Luke is telling Theophilus, uh, note carefully, this is where it all kind of uh, just begin, like it is on. Um, a lot of stuff is just preparation for this moment, getting baptized, uh, being dedicated in the temple, spending time in the temple as a 12-year-old, and now... At 30 years of age, he is just opening it up for ministry. So let's just take a look. In, in these words, it says, um, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, which was his hometown, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that says he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And that's where I want to just stop for a second. Because the, the whole point of getting up in the synagogue and reading this scroll was to reveal to the people at his hometown that his identity wasn't just the fact that he's from Nazareth, but rather it was the fact that he was called to be the one who would fulfill that message that we read about in Isaiah. It's a pretty bold statement. And he says it in such a powerful way that the people are amazed at how the words are flowing out of him with such deep conviction. And they're very impressed. And it's sort of like the delivery of what he said just had such a, an overwhelming appeal that, they, that, that it just kind of rocked their world a little bit. However, when it began to soak in what this meant, Jesus could begin to see on their faces, is he saying what I think he's saying? And so there's a lot going on. The very first sermon that he has to his hometown people, and they're impressed. But there is a quick turning of their hearts and their minds to what he has said that becomes overwhelmingly negative. And I just want to set this up for you because Jesus has got a lot going on right now as far as what's been building. And I just want to review this a little bit as, um, as we look backward to see how we got to this moment. And I want to keep this intention with you guys, what, um, what, what Jesus uh, is actually experiencing in terms of favor and then a huge amount of disfavor. So according to Luke, there are several identities that Jesus has that um, we've already explored. The first one, and I, I want to look at the identities according to Luke's slide. And in it, we see he says he is the son of God. And we know that when he was baptized, that's exactly what the voice said from heaven. And not only that, he's the Davidic Messiah. In the Old Testament, there was an expectation that somebody would sit on David's throne forever. And Jesus came to announce that he was that somebody. And we read about that in the genealogy. And then thirdly, we find that he is the faithful son of God and we know that through what we experienced in the wilderness, uh, getting tempted by the evil one. And so the faithfulness of the Son of God contrasted to the unfaithfulness of God's people who had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they died. Jesus basically fulfilled all of these categories of what it meant to be who he was called to be, his identity. And now he says he's a prophet. 
And as we're reading this, we find out why, because his very first sermon to his hometown, he quotes two prophets. Let's just look at those prophets as we go back to the scripture real quick. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet, and you're looking at a prophet right now, is acceptable in his hometown. So already it's provocative. He obviously didn't read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, because he's starting to antagonize. But if you've ever read the prophets of the Old Testament, you find that, well, they're pretty antagonistic people. They're the kind of people that say the thing that you don't want to hear, and it gets under your skin. And I just want to lay out a little bit more background before we get into what that can mean for us. So let's just continue. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel during the days of Elijah. And uh, just think Ahab and Jezebel. If you've ever read the Old Testament and you know Ahab and Jezebel, you know these are pretty dark characters. And Elijah had to speak to them. And so in that day, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, meaning outside the boundary of Israel, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet. So if you haven't been able to wrap your mind around what he's saying here, he's essentially telling us, um, Elijah had a message that was a message of hope and consolation and healing, but it wasn't for you guys. It was for those guys that you hate. Okay, so now it's getting interesting because he goes on to identify with Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the, Syri the Syrian, also somebody that they disliked greatly. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, I'll just tell you something personal. I remember studying for the ministry and it was always this sense that it's a privilege to be able to pre preach God's word. And you had an expectation that whenever you did, you know, people would give you attaboys and stuff like that. And, you know, when I first started, I got to think that they wanted to probably throw me over the, 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 the brow of the hill as well, basically because I just wasn't a good speaker. And yet those people just were gracious and they endured the badness of my ability to communicate. And it was wonderful. And I got a lot of attaboys and a lot of keep going and keep doing what you're doing and a lot of encouragement. And I went into, I went into the first um, few years of ministry thinking that if I just preach God's word in the way that I'm supposed to, it's going to make everybody happy. And everybody's going to be thrilled that we can be together around God's word. Guess how long that lasted? Not very long, 
Because sometimes I discover later on that when you preach God's word, not everybody wants to hear what you have to say. And it's because you're trying to preach all of those things from the whole counsel of God, those things that have to do with the good, the bad, and the ugly of life. And sometimes I would have somebody come up to me after a sermon, and they would be kind of irate. And it was like, why, why, were, you, why were you singling me out in your sermon? You embarrassed me. And I honestly didn't even know that that was even happening. But it's the way the word of God works. It comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable, is what I was told. And then uh, as I matured a little bit as a pastor, I discovered that Jesus' first sermon didn't go so well either. Like, they weren't entirely happy. I mean, right out of the gate, you would think they would say, oh, that's our guy, out of boy. And that's sort of what they felt like whenever they were hearing this, except Jesus left some things out in the sermon that, well, that was kind of disturbing. And I could see maybe passing a note underneath his office door, Jesus, you left something out here, and we're not necessarily happy with the way the sermon went. What did Jesus leave out? Well, do you remember he was given the scroll, and it's not like the Bible we have, but you have to scroll through it. And he, he knew exactly what he wanted to read, and he scrolled to Isaiah 61. And let's just put Isaiah 61 up there real quick so you know what I'm talking about. So this is the text for Jesus' first sermon in his hometown. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, and... Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives. Let's just stop right there. Now, let's just say that people bought into the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, that their hometown boy was actually now coming to do something dramatic for the hopes and the dreams and the wishes of God's people who had lived century after century, feeling the oppressive hand of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then on and on down to the Romans. And they're like, we are longing for the day when we no longer have these people out there telling us what to do. We're sick of it. And I think there were people in his home church who have been hearing stories that Luke had kind of said. He'd been doing some preaching elsewhere. And they were starting to believe. Until, until this. The next verse, he says, um, And the release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you could just see, because they've heard this before, they know this passage, Isaiah was like the, it was like the gospel of the Old Testament. And they're just waiting. And, and, and the day of the vengeance of God? Because they were well aware that Isaiah was saying, there's gonna be a day of reckoning. You ever read any uh, books or Enjoy any movies where there is an innocent person just minding their own business, 
bad people come in, they wreck their world, and then there is a Clint Eastwood character that comes in and says, I think it's time for a reckoning. If you've ever watched the movie Tombstone, you know those words. Uh, when Doc Holliday is told uh, by one of the people that was watching the unfolding of this drama that this was about vengeance, and he said, no, this isn't about vengeance. This is about a reckoning. It's a powerful line in that movie because it, it, it really scratches a deep itch in all of us. When somebody does wrong to you, let's be honest, isn't there a little bit of get-evenness that crosses your mind? I mean, I'd be truthful. I'd, I'll be the first to tell you, when somebody done me wrong, I'd be thinking about doing them wrong. But that's just the nature of my own sinfulness that's part of the problem. Jesus leaves these words out, and then he goes on to rub salt in the wound by saying, as a matter of fact, the good news is actually for the widows out there in uh, Zarephath and the uh, people in Sidon and the lepers and the people that are outcast outside of here. They didn't like that too well because their version of the gospel was you're going to tell us what we've been longing to hear and we will get even with the people that have been beating us up and oppressing us and trying to tell us what to do far too long. Now, sometimes when you come to church, you hear a message, and maybe you see the message title, and you think, oh, that's going to be so good. I'm excited to hear about that topic, and only to find out it doesn't really go the way you want it to go. Matter of fact, it leaves you feeling a little bit agitated or upset. Now, maybe that's just perhaps a bad sermon from a, a rookie pastor like you know, I, I, I felt like for many years. But perhaps it's God speaking to you. And one of the most difficult things as a pastor is to have people get upset about what they hear because God has his mark with us. And sometimes if you've got some energy that is sort of building up inside, you need to have an outlet for that. And that's just the nature of what we do. Now, I've talked to a number of people in February, and they've said, the world is just not a nice place to be in right now. A lot of people that I work with, they're just not in a good place. And a lot of the stuff that is trying to get done, it's just not working the way it's supposed to. Things are kind of out of alignment. And I just hear this over and over and over, and I'm probably contributing to that just like everybody else. But what it basically says is that our humanity is not in the best 
place, this is not our best moment right now. This is a very stressful moment that you and I are living in. And perhaps what it's done is it's just created a lot of energy. And that energy has to come out. There has to be a lightning rod for that energy somewhere. And I was talking to a friend the other day, and they said, I was doing some work on my computer, and I just had this overwhelming urge to pick it up and throw it out the window. The problem was the window wasn't open, and I still felt the urge. Probably because of my wife, I didn't act on it, but it was there. There was a lot of energy. And essentially, if you are feeling that right now, that's something that you need to take to God. That's something perhaps this uh, five power habits will help you deal with because it's there and you have to own it. And these people had that energy and it was pent up and they did not like what they were hearing. And it was sort of like the response was way over calibrated to the offense. And maybe you've been on the receiving end of somebody's wrath. And all you did was just trigger what was already there. We are definitely living in a moment, my friends, where we are easily triggered. And we have to be self-aware about how things are getting under our skin. And we got to calibrate, we got to step back and talk to ourselves and say, you know what? I got to calibrate my reaction because I'm too sensitive here. Well, the life that Jesus lived was by design something that had enough connections to the life that you and I live that as we pay attention to it, I think it'll help us. And the reason why he was able to say the sermon the way he did is because he did spend time alone with the Lord. He prayed about it. He got centered in the Lord, and he had his presence of mind. Because how painful is it when people you love kick you out of church because they don't like what you said? I'm not trying to talk about me. I'm just talking about anybody. That's essentially what they were doing to him. Well, getting back to our story, we find that Jesus was... He was ready for this. And I'll tell you why he was ready. I want to show you another slide about what Luke said, and I hope you can gain something from this. It's the slide that talks about how the Holy Spirit was at work in his life. Because as the curtain is raised on his public ministry, as it begins to show who it is that his people are dealing with, there's something that's been going on inside of him that Luke is very careful to track, not only through Luke, but through the book of Acts. And it says this. Jesus was conceived by the Spirit. We know that. He's the only begotten Son of God. He's the only one of his kind. But not only that, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came down and anointed him which is unusual because only kings got anointed by the Spirit in that way. And now he had to face off with the devil who 
he was led by the Spirit to go into the wilderness, and then the devil shows up. And I know that when you're led by the Spirit to do something, the devil will show up. But not only that, in the Old Testament, when you got the Spirit, it was sort of episodic, and we talked about this last week. When Jesus got the Spirit, it was chronic, meant that it was an enabling that stayed with him. And that was unusual. That didn't happen. But something new was getting underway, and it involves how the Spirit is at work in your life and mine. So Jesus now is empowered by the Spirit. And I'm just going to add, I'm just going to say one more point before I finish up. But I want you to know something. That if you fast forward to the end of the book of Luke, and you open up the next book that he wrote to Theophilus called Acts, at the very beginning, right out of the gate, after Jesus goes to be with the Father, and is now sitting at the right hand on the throne in authority over all. He says, I got to go so he can come into your life and mine, enabling us to be different people. Yeah, I used to like the idea of a reckoning, but for some strange reason, when the Holy Spirit began to work on me, he basically redirected my feelings and passions about the rights and the wrongs to the feet of our Lord Jesus. And you learn to pray for others rather than give them the one-finger salute. You learn to do the things that are of the mind of God and not of the mind of the world. Where does that come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Acts, there's a dramatic, beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit just coming down onto the people and embodying them and filling them and staying with them and staying with you and I at our baptism. But I sometimes think we don't tune in to his presence. It's kind of like that person that you have in your world, you know, you don't pay much attention to. You're just glad that they're there. And God may be saying, look at what my son is doing. He's in tune with the Spirit, he's in tune with my will, and he's doing what he's supposed to do in times that are uncertain and troubling and fearful. You ever live in a time that is uncertain, troubling, and fearful? If you do, maybe the only way you can keep your presence of mind is to stay connected to the Word and daily being in tune with the Spirit. Every morning I get up and I say, Holy Spirit, come and fill me and take those places that are not dedicated to God in my life and replace them with your presence. And I pray that prayer every day. And I'm not the best person in the world, but I can tell you, inviting the Spirit into my life every day has made a difference that I, I, I don't have words to account for. And he will in your life as well. He will help you keep your sanity in an insane moment. He will help to empower you to do those things that you otherwise would not feel like doing or have the will to do. He will enable you as he enabled the son. 
So the last point is this. The reason why Jesus preached the sermon is it because it paralleled an experience that Israel never, never had, but they were told they should do. And you know what that was? In Leviticus, it talks about the year of Jubilee. You know what the year of Jubilee was? It would be like your banker coming, knocking on your door and saying, well, guess what? This is the year of Jubilee. You have $20,000 in credit card debt forgiven. We were getting ready to foreclose on your house. Forgiven. You can have your house back. We were getting ready to turn you over to the IRS. Forgiven. All these things are forgiven. And the land that you had somehow bartered away or in a moment of scarcity sold off, returned. That was the year of Jubilee. I mean, just a powerful vision of restoring every kind of a 49-year reset. Wouldn't that be cool if in the United States everything was just kind of reset back? Well, trust me, it'll never happen as long as <laughs> things are the way they are. But in God's economy, he says, I've come to do what Jubilee was supposed to do only more so. That's what the year of the Lord's favor was all about. Now, it doesn't mean that you can call Capital One after we get done from church and say, well, you know what? Jesus said, because I'm guessing they're not going to be too thrilled about what you, uh, you had to propose to them or too bought in. But this is actually cosmic. Because essentially what he's saying is, if you think the Romans and the Greeks and the Seleucids and the Babylonians and the Assyrians were heavy-handed and evil and dark and gouging out your king's eyes before uh, they, kill, they, they killed his sons and then drug him off to Babylon, you think that was dark? Let me tell you, those people were operating under dark forces that were just enabling them to be so evil. And the good news is that the one who is responsible for that darkness has been defeated. And in Acts, people start hearing the good news, and they know that they're oppressed. They know their hearts are heavy. They know they've got a heavy burden of shame that is weighing them down from a rearview mirror that just says ugly all over it. They know all of this stuff, and they're reminded by the accuser every day that these things are why your life is a horrible experience. Now, I'm not saying I'm overstating that for many of us, but for some, that's definitely where they're at. And it's that accuser that Jesus says, you lose. I am claiming those people who need a Savior for my own. Now, they have to consent to it. I'm not going to just go and take them against their volition. they got to be on board with what God is doing. And if you hear the gospel and you repent based on what we heard John the Baptist say you need to do, get your house in order so that Jesus can come and begin to fill it. And when you hear that stuff that Jesus said about the year of the Lord's favor, you're like, sign me up. 
what do I need to do? Where do I need to go? How do I, how do I, how do I find the door? And Jesus says, I am the way. And as he's telling us that, he's showing us that there is a means of being transferred out of the domain of darkness into a kingdom where we're going to have struggles, no question about it. And when the Lord finally comes, it's all going to be put into order. But in the meantime, as you exist in environments and dominions that are under his control, I'll give you a peace that passes all understanding. I'll be your provider. You pray the Lord's Prayer, and when you do, you say, Our Father, our Father, not the Father of lies, but our Father, the one in heaven, who has a holy and revered name, the one we respect and honor and want to obey and serve. That Father gives us our daily bread every day. That Father helps us to forgive other people. That Father, whenever we are led into the test, keeps us from the temptation of the tempter. That Father, that Father whose power and kingdom and glory is forever, that Father. But they didn't see it. And so they tried to kill him. And people that don't see it, don't like it. They may not try to kill you, but they may say, you're a bad person for following Jesus. You're not right. You're not with it. But I've followed they who are saying that, and they're not a very appealing bunch of people to be the ones to direct you on the right path. Otherwise, there wouldn't be fear and there wouldn't be oppressiveness and there wouldn't be uncertainty and there wouldn't be anxiety and there wouldn't be suicidal tendencies and there wouldn't be all that stuff because the message they have is a lie. But the message that Jesus has for his hometown people and for the people beyond, as Luke begins to show us, us, that message is a message of the Lord's favor. And we're here to declare it through the lens of a bloodstained cross that enables us to take our guilt and our shame and our sin that the devil accuses us of every time that we are party to those things and receive it upon himself purchasing our right to be citizens of the kingdom, to be sons and daughters of God. And then those seemingly defeated on the third day came up out of the tomb through the power of the Father and declared, it is finished. You are finished. And then he just called his disciples and he called his people and he said, let everybody know that the year of the Lord's favor is on. But you have to turn away from whatever that is that you've given your heart to 
and you have to give it to him. The Bible calls that repentance. It's those things that we treasure that are alien to his purposes, that are counter to our humanity, that dehumanize us. Take him to the cross. Give it to him. We're getting ready to have communion here in a second. And when we drink of the cup, drink of the of the cup and we eat of the loaf, remember this is him taking that away. But I also want anyone in this room and anyone online that's hearing this, if you haven't clicked off yet, if you have and other people find out about it, tell them. Tune in to the end of the message. God has given us an opportunity to have new life, to have abundant life, to have a life that is filled with his peace and his joy and hopefully produces his love. That's an invitation that I want to give you into a space that maybe you've never occupied before. And I want to do that as I, as I pray. And if God is working in your heart and convicting you or prodding you or prompting you to do something, let me or one of the people around you in our church help you to bring it to him, to know him, and to be a part of his family. Would you bow with me? Our Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that as you have given us this new hope, declaring the year of the Lord's favor, you have promised us that as we cleanse our house through repentance that your Holy Spirit will come and fill us and enable us in ways that we could never imagine. Thank you Holy Spirit for being an inhabitant of your people. Thank you for convicting us of sin and righteousness and the judgment and it does make us mad when you do Holy Spirit but as you do it clarifies our need for the things of God. And we are grateful. Father, I pray for everyone here that if the things that I've said have had a convicting element to where we're at, that you would move us a step closer. And I pray, Father, you give us eyes as leaders, elders, people to see what you're doing in the hearts of those who are seeking. And I thank you. Lord, we're getting ready to take this cup that your son has given us and we're going to reflect on it, Lord, in a way that reminds us of that bloodstained cross. I just ask, Father, help us to trust that whatever is in our hearts that's sinful, that we have a sense of shame or vengeance or reckoning, or whatever it is that is getting in the way. Lord Jesus, we want to give it to you. Cover it with your blood. And take it on your cross. As we look at the broken body, Lord, help us to re-dramatize in our own minds. You in agony on the cross because of your deep love for each of us, every one of us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Bless this loaf and this cup as we take it together. Amen.
you'd like to stand with us in your own time. You have searched me, you know my heart. Before I spoke, you knew my every thought. The wonder of your knowledge is far too high for me to understand. You knew I'd leave your side The cover in the cover of the night There's no place I could hide From the mercy of your life Your kindness leads me To Your grace assures me to trust in you. I could climb up to the sky. I dive down deep where darkest evil lies. I'll never find a place to flee. Your presence is always where I am. You never leave my side. Even when I fight to get my way, you patiently disarm my defenses with your grace. Your kindness. puts a burden on us that only you can lift and, and you show us a way that only you can lead um, help us to be glad followers, followers of you because it's so freeing when you 
when you take the reins. And it's, it's everything in us believes that we have to. And, um, and that we need to justify urges and grant satisfactions to triggers. And Lord Jesus, you'll say a lot of these things in us so that you can bring out our motives and our hearts and our agendas. And you're leading us away from ourselves so that we might find our true humanity in you and be in a right relationship with our God. Help us to desire that that's the work that you're doing. Father, you say your work is that we would believe in your son. I pray that you would do that work in us. I thank you for the work that you've done in us. I thank you for a pastor who's faithfully stalling your word and in such a heart to lay us on us in love. I thank you for his pastoral heart and I thank you for your father heart at work within his Thank you for all that you've done, all that you're doing, and all that you will do. May our hope ever be in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, go get your kids. We'll see you soon.